You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The waiting was never easy. Once the shooting started, a feeling of clarity always took over. You'd die or you wouldn't. You'd kill or be killed. It was one or the other and never anything in between. You knew where you stood. And for those violent, heart-pumping minutes, Dodd felt himself lifted on a wave of adrenaline that eradicated virtually anything about him that was even vaguely personal. It could be said that in the heat of combat, the man known as Satch Dodd ceased to exist, even to himself. And when the dust cleared and he found himself still standing, he experienced a rush of raw existence as if he'd been shot from a cannon back into the world. It was in the waiting that a person experienced too much of himself. Memories, doubts, regrets, anxieties, the whole range of possibilities the future contained all swirled together in the mind like a soup. While half of Dodd's attention was intently focused on the situation at hand, the detonator in his grip and the presence of his men around him and the walkie clipped to his shoulder through which Henneman's command to blow the hole would come, the other half was ricocheting through the chambers of his private self. Only when Henneman gave the signal to explode the bomb would this feeling, a kind of whole-body psychological nausea, abate, igniting his power to act. The major's voice crackled through the radio, blue squad, all eyes, Donatio's going in. Something tensed inside him. He felt himself returning to the moment, acknowledged. It couldn't happen soon enough. Justin Cronin is the author of Mary and O'Neill, which won the Penn Hemingway Award in the Stephen Crane Prize, The Summer Guest, and the best-selling novel, The Passage. His new novel is The Twelve. Thank you for joining me, Justin. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. Justin, this novel begins with a, a lovely passage of biblical prose. Mm-hmm. In 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 the King James style, and I yeah really... I can't I can't take credit for its loveliness. It was the, the style the style was not mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really like that because that gets us very quickly to I think one of the interesting aspects of this book is that it operates at that joining point where the spiritual concerns are just about to be co-opted by organized religion. And I think that's a very interesting way for you to write that book, write this book. Well, this is um, this trilogy is about a world that is rat- eradicated and then reassembled, which would include the reassembly, one supposes, of a certain kind of faith, although one very much colored by the, you know, the experience of vast destruction. And uh, the the novel is is quite open about the particular religious narrative tradition in which this falls, which, of course, is an Old Testament tradition traced to the story of Noah. And when I wrote this opening biblical passage, which one imagines to be a kind of gospel of the future, something a thousand years in the future that is associated with a religious sense of these events in the past, a kind of new creation story... It you know served double duty in the in the story of course to kind of help readers quickly remember the events of the of the previous novel which you know that's an interesting problem to try to solve I've never seen anybody quite do it the way I did and I felt very good about it but it also it's an important theme in the story how do you reassemble a world and what does the destruction of the world mean does it is 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 there a God does God pay attention does he care 
are the survivors of this catastrophe who, uh, you know, the, most of the story is set 100 years after the catastrophe. Are they, in a sense, being tested, not just not just tested in terms of their physical resolve and their um, resourcefulness, but also in their faith? You know, one of the things that I think was so interesting about this book was that as a sequel, you kind of took us out of uh, the chronology. Usually sequels, you know, Mm -hmm. A to B, B to C, C to D. And what you end up with then in terms of a trilogy is an often a middle book that has no beginning and end. And right. you've done a really neat, <laughs> taken a really end run around that problem. Yeah, every, every time I write a novel, I want to sort of try a new, you know, sort of I want to address a new aspect of novel writing. And, you know, the best thing about my job is that I'm free to fail at it. I, I have no boss. You know, the passage itself was my, I assumed, doomed attempt at writing on a huge canvas, you know, I'd written novels before that had a fairly, you know, fairly narrow time frame and, you know, a small number of characters. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm just going to go for it, you know, because I loved, uh, you know, starting as a young reader, I loved books that you could just really immerse yourself in a whole world for a long period of time. And I felt that, you know, that readers liked that. With this novel, I said, okay, I am writing a trilogy. It was always conceived as a story with essentially a beginning, middle and end. You know, I just, I needed a lot of room to tell it. But I didn't want to fall into the middle book trap, which you described very well. You know, a book with no particular beginning, no particular end, just just sort of way to get from book one to book three. So what I decided to do is I wanted to infuse the story with a kind of fresh energy, new characters, and new terms. You know, a novel, if it's going to stand on its own in some way, needs its own terms. And if you just continue the story, you're borrowing all your propulsion from the previous novel. And so in The Twelve, as I will also do in The City of Mirrors, which is the concluding volume of this story, I do go back to the past to show you something that happened, um, you know, usually at the periphery of your vision, not knowing how important it was. I'm a big believer in backstory. You know, I, I want the past to be present in the future. That's, among other things, that's how I know who my characters are. I always say that I can't know a character unless I know what they're not telling anybody, and that's always something in the past. And so I wanted the novel to have the same kind of past. You know, when we uh, read these books, one of the most enjoyable aspects of reading these things, I think the reason that readers, people who just truly love to read, enjoy them so much, is the process of putting together all the pieces you Mm -hmm. give us. You give us lots of different pieces, past, present, future, narrative, maps, Mm -hmm. uh, posters. Talk about creating those different pieces. And are they created in the order that we read them, or do they get created disparately and then kind of assembled together afterwards. Well, they're, they're conceived, you know, from the get-go. You know, I like to have, there's a kind of documentation, a sort of ancillary or adjacent narrative that's going on in all these books, a lot of which project a thousand years in the future when, this, when the events of these novels had become, in a sense, sort of basis for something rather like religion or legend, perhaps. And what you're seeing is the actual human events that over a period of a, you know, a millennium have become, you know, something, something quite different and profound to, you know, the, the survivors um, of the, the great 
viral catastrophe. But I love these adjacent documents. For, among other things, it's a ch chance for me to kind of stretch myself as a writer. When I wrote the prologue to the 12, of course, I had to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write just like King James. <laughs> you know, I'm going to write just like the King James version of the Bible, which, if you look at it carefully, is full of sort of beautiful and complex syntax. It's very rich. I've had to write in a variety of, of you know, f styles that were new to me. In the first book, of course, I had to write several um, newspaper articles um, describing what is essentially the end of the world coming. And to do that, I went and looked at um, the New York Times from 9-12. You know, how, do you, how do you describe events that have enormous magnitude that haven't been that are almost unprocessable. You know, they haven't been processed. There's information coming from so many sources, and you know, how do you how do you tell that story in a newspaper? I had to write a bit of a romance novel. One of my characters in the passage has found a box of romance novels. You know, that are a hundred years old, and her mind is just kind of afloat in them. And that was that was a kick to do. There are maps, there are journals. The epistolary tradition is one that's operating here. Um, I love doing the maps because I really like to have my story take place um, firmly in the world that you and I live in, you know, with an accurate depiction of topography, weather, distance, um, the names of places. Um, and so I do it for myself as a kind of mnemonic, a sort of reminder that this is not a world I am making up. I'm making up events in, the, in a world that is the same one I actually live in. Also to help the reader and also to create just a variety of textures in a book. I think if you're going to write a long book, you should do a lot of different stuff. Uh, that's what makes it so much fun to read. And, you know, at one point in this book, uh, one of the characters refers to uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm -hmm. And they say it's the, the original, uh, a great manual for how, for yeah. how to take Almost care of like him. an owner's manual, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to make the nod, okay? You know, I, I'm not somebody who thinks I invented the novel or invented the various literary traditions in which I'm operating. Every, every book... You know, you can classify it. You know, they say literary fiction is, you know, one thing and commercial fiction is not. But I would, you know, I, there's a million subcategories for literary fiction that you could say is a particular genre. I always say, like, you know, um, I particularly love the male midlife crisis novel because I'm a male at midlife. Um, so, I, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, I, I make these knots, uh, you know, overtly. And, of course, Bram Stoker occurs in both um, in ref there are references to it in both novels. The first time, the first novel, a bunch of people are watching the old original movie, which is something I saw as a kid, so I owe it a nod, right? And and then later on, some characters discuss it in volume two, and they realize that what they are dealing with is a you know a biological being um, infected with a virus, but that possesses. Um, virtually, there's an analog for each of the characteristics of the traditional gothic vampire. And one of my characters does refer to that movie. It says, I studied it. It's like an owner's manual, um, which I mean, that, was, that, was, that was a line that was kind of a pleasure to write because it was also sort of owner's manual for me in telling the story. I wanted to backtrack the magical vampire, um, the gothic legend, principally an Eastern European village myth, um, to what might in nature actually be be the source of the legend, right? What you know, something that actually can occur with all the physical, physical, essentially a collection of symptoms of a disease that over time have morphed into a legend. The way the story uh, that takes place across these three volumes is a human reality that over a thousand years itself has morphed into a legend. 
And that's one of the things I think you do very well. <clears throat> and also, as well, Dracula is one of the first books I remember reading to use this kind of the same kind of structure you mm -hmm. use with yeah. all sorts of letters and journals and uh, newspaper articles and things that it's an interesting, uh, it seems almost ex like an experimental novel if it weren't so old. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, it, I, obviously I, I did sort of make a nod to not only to the story and mm -hmm. to the Dracula story, but also to the way that it is told, mm -hmm. um, which, again, I'm free to fail, I'm free to try whatever I like, and I found I really like this. It was fun to do, to stretch that way, and it's it frankly it has great utility in a narrative because it bring, can bring information into the story um, that otherwise would be extremely difficult and awkward to bring in, right? It wouldn't correspond to the way the rest of the narrative is structured. I'm constantly finding ways, or looking for ways to tell a large story, and you need to have you know you, this, the the traditional constraints of a narrative, you know, located in the consciousness of a few characters, for instance. That that's hard to get everything in, and it results often in really boring exposition and I just didn't want to have it and I realized that telling a story this way um, created as I said that kind of rich surface and also had tremendous utility for storytelling well it's it's very exciting to read and one of the things I think this book really focused on well was this vision of a post-apocalyptic America and a post-apocalyptic world and you do a great job of describing what happens to cities after, like a hundred years after, no humans have lived there? Right. Yeah. You know, I had to. I had to sit down and think very carefully of, about two things. One is a world without people, and then what people there are. There are. How would they think about things? How would they experience their daily lives? For describing the world after a hundred years after it's been largely depopulated by humanity, the one thing I discovered in my contemplations and my investigations of this that essentially the one thing that makes a difference is how much water there is. Right? So the first book is you know is largely set in um, the you know in a mountain community. Or it, this is the most important setting: a mountain community uh, in Southern California, Southern California that is. Um, located essentially it's an alpine community with desert beneath and then the characters make a journey across those deserts into nevada to las vegas las vegas would be the best preserved city in america absolutely it would be like you know the pyramids of egypt because it's dry right so it would be as they say in this book sanded up that's the term for things that have sort of slowly being buried but um it would be phenomenally well preserved um, Houston, which comes up in the second book, and I live in Houston, so that was, you know, that's one of the reasons I, I chose it. Um, Houston would liquefy. I mean, the, 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 it, Houston is basically a paved swamp, and I, I speak with love. I do live there and have many friends there, and I think it's a wonderful city. But um, the idea that humans could actually live there is, has always been a little strange, and it becomes, as the novel says, the liquefied city drowned by the sea, none but its skyscrapered core left standing, and that is exactly how it would look. One of the things I, I thought was so interesting, too, is the way your, very, your cast of characters react to this kind of apocalyptic devastation. And I think you do a great job of, of tracing out the various reactions. And I particularly like uh, the character, especially when we first meet her, Lila, uh, mm -hmm. because she has had such a, an interesting reaction. Yeah, I wanted to have one character who simply blows apart, right? Her, her brain just blows apart because of this, because of not just what she experiences 
you know, in raw terror in the events that she I mean, she has, she has something that happens to her personally. She's in she's a doctor. She's in a hospital when somebody is brought in with this virus and is there when the transformation occurs and a whole bunch of people are torn to shreds before her eyes, but also by the fact that she's pregnant and the pregnancy um, and it, her um, you know, terrible fear that she's bringing a child into this world really pushes her over the edge. And I, I wanted to write, again, I wanted to write a truly unreliable nar- you know, narrative consciousness in the book. I have a lot of heroes. I have a lot of people who cope pretty well in the book, and it seemed to me to be... You know, a, a, a notable absence that I didn't have somebody whose psychology was really rewritten by these events. And I loved writing Lila. I had more back and forth about that character with my editor than any other because um, there's also a sort of comic element to her. The way she copes often outwardly reads um, as, as comedy. And uh, my editor was a little uncomfortable with all the jokes, but again, I don't think any. I don't. I don't think a book can really um, get by without without a bit of, in this case, sort of graveyard humor. It's a nice leavening effect, and I think you do a a good job too of uh, playing it both ways. There's a a, a sense of. It's funny, but it's also deeply tragic. And, oh yeah, and yeah. I think the it's nice to get both it both sides of that uh, very sharp sword. I mean, she's a woman who's sort of frozen in a moment where she's just sort of reconstructed her old life, old life mentally in circumstances that are radically different. So, you know, she's constantly worried whatever, what happened to the housekeeper? Why hasn't she shown up, right? And is rationalizing endlessly the, the um, you know, the odd things about the world. Like, where's the newspaper? Where, where, where's that? And when is David coming home? And, of course, David is dead. Everybody's dead. And she's sitting in her house, pregnant, and um, and very concerned that he has not come home to help her paint the nursery, right? And she's totally narrowed her focus because the pregnancy is the only thing that matters, and it's really that's really the true source of her terror. Um, so, again, it's... It has its comic outward movements, but of course, at its at its core, is a you know there's a it's a it's a terrible and scary story. Now, one of the things that moves the plot ahead really well, there's a lot of stuff that happens, uh, obviously, right. and that's very exciting and it's really well written and and drawn for us. But one of the things I think you do very well to move the plot ahead is to uh, do plot by character development. There are a lot of characters we see change and grow, and Lila is actually one of the yeah. one of the best um, in terms of making us say, "I can't wait to see what this person's going to be like next time around," because the world is so challenging to them. I, I I've said that you know when I sat down to write this book, I sat down with a big plot in my head, you know, and I'd never written a book that had such a sprawling sprawling plot, and I love plot, you know. I I I'd written some novels before where the plots were simply more quiet. Um, but when I, I sat down to start this novel, I, I realized um, quickly why I loved a really big plot with a really big, you know, in a sense, an historical canvas. Large events are happening, um, and I merely have a, a handful of characters who are experiencing them. I think it's the best way to sort of describe history, in this case, a future history. It has to be through the direct experience of individuals. Um, but the, the, the characters of this novel, the chief characterizing device I use um, it comes from a very simple principle, which is that when you're running for your life, you cannot help but be yourself, right? And I ask, I ask each of my characters, I say, okay, when you're running for your life, what's the one thing you'll carry with you? And 
it's a very elegant and streamlining um, character device. And I think, and, and when I, and, and thinking about that consistently, I think helped me say to my, you know, help me remind myself that I was really writing about people. It's not a book really about the end of the world. It's a, really a book about people. And that's um, where I hope the strength of the story really resides. When you say it's not a book about the end of the world, you know, I really agree. For a, a book that features uh, some really scary version of vampires and then a few other versions of vampires that are equally scary but different, uh, yes, it does involve the depopulation of most of the world. This book reads does not read like a, a science fiction novel. It doesn't read like a horror novel. It reads like a kind of a, a regular drama because mm-hmm. you focus so much on the people, all the kind of elements of the fantastic are dialed off to the left, right, in the mm-hmm. background, underground, overhead. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I think that makes the, that makes the, those elements really more scary, right? Because they're 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 kind of directly not they're sort of out of the reader's direct field of view, right? They're, they're, it's it's working from the edges, and so when terrible things happen in this novel, they as the saying goes in the book, they come from above. They come from above. Um, that's um, that's how people experience the dangers of this world. But what defines them equally is the same things that define you and me. You know, they're, who their friends are, um, who they love, um, how do they feel about having children. Um, again, what will you carry? And what happened to you in your past that has shaped who you are now, and it could have been, you know, in this in this particular world, a violent trauma, and many of my characters have experienced that and experienced it quite young, but other times it's things that happen just pretty much ordinarily in this world, you know, a sibling rivalry, a parent that you didn't get to know before they died, um, uh, the loss of um, a, a loved one, a spouse, and I think that in this world, a hundred years past this horrible cataclysm, the things that would define us most would be still the things that define us now. You know, our work, our family, how we spend our daily lives. You have to cope. You know, even in this world, you have to find a way to carry on. For those of us who who enjoy reading, one of the pleasures of a book like this is that when when you're immersed in a book like this and you're looking at characters who are coping with the end of the world and you look up and say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter how the election goes. <laughs> if they right, can, yes, if they can yeah. survive a plague of vampires, we can survive whoever it is we like or don't like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what, and what's interesting is um, on that theme is that I, I have, it seems, a pretty large military readership, both um, vets and active duty. Um, and I hear a lot from them. And, of course, it's, it's very gratifying. I, I try to be very careful with my research and I certainly feel like I owe a profound debt of accuracy to the men and women who put their lives in jeopardy for our country and its ideals. Um, but I also just like being accurate. Um, I hear all the time from these readers, and I, you know, I hear encouraging things and, and an acknowledgement that I've done a good, that I've done my job well. Um, what I also hear is that, and this is something somebody told me um, via Facebook, um, a guy, you know in Afghanistan who said, you know, something books to, are to deployment what cigarettes are to prison, you know, <laughs> because, you know, if you're, if you're over there, you have, uh, you know, moments of just, you know, hair raising terror and uh, incomprehensible violence you need to cope with. But in, in between, 
you got a lot of empty time. And um, these men and women really read. Um, and I've I've heard a lot from a, a great a great many of them. And to my pleasure, they they you know they report that I again I did my job right. Well, I do think you do a great job with the military in this book, and you also do a a great job with setting up your post-apocalyptic scenario because you give us a kind of a a, a road trip post the the right. post-apocalyptic road trip, which is right. a, a scare eerily to think it's a novel form that has some history from on the beach on. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, I mean, I, it's, it is a post-apocalyptic novel. It's it's a horror novel. It has aspects of gothic fiction. It takes a lot of its cues from, oh, God, a range of books and movies that I've loved, everything from King Lear, which is really overtly referred to in the text. King Lear is an apocalyptic play that every human bond of any meaning, every human institution is destroyed in five acts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm invoking all these things. One of the things I was very conscious of was that I was at a tart. I was really writing a road novel, as you say. I was really writing a road novel. It's great literary tradition. I, I you know, I'd, I'd say that you know, the Odyssey would be the would be the the granddad of this. Um, but it's a road story in the American West involving um, people who are experiencing the immense landscapes of the West for the first time. That's what the Western is. So it's also a Western, one of our great literary traditions, the investigation of wildness. You know, European settlers, generally pretty refined people. I mean, the first ones were, you know, some of the most civilized in the sense that their behavior was constrained by profound religious faith. You know, coming to a place of immense, crazy nature, completely un, you know, domesticated, and a population with a completely different cultural tradition, largely nomadic, um, and um, experiencing every conceivable emotion that you might have as a consequence. My characters do that 100 years in a post-industrial West. Um, it is very much a Western. And I would say that one of the most influential books in my writing of this was, in fact, a Western. It was Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, which is a cattle drive novel and very much a genre novel. I mean, everything you expect from a Western in there is in there, every trope. Um, but it's also a masterpiece. It's well-written. And that book told me, when I read it in the 1980s, actually the late 80s, a friend pressed it into my hands, and I was, I was very, I, re- I accepted it very reluctantly because it was a Western, right? Um, but it's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. A great characterization, wonderful language, great storytelling, wonderful narrative choices, terrific scenes, great sort of modulation of the story. I can sound like a complete professor nerd sometimes, but you know the text slows down, speeds up, slows down. It's great novel, and you know um, you can do that with genre, and uh, um, that was a model for me trying to do it do do genre right. And what interests me too is that. I thought this was a great uh, Heartland novel in that so many novels uh, take place on the East Coast or the West Coast. It's L.A., it's New York, it's San Francisco, it's Florida. But this novel is really set in the heartland of America. It's about the heartland of America, and it's got a a great cross-section of American, the American population. You just did basically a straight-ahead sample and and, Mm -hmm. – drew up your syringe and dumped your characters out onto the slide, there they are. And there they are, yeah. I mean, the, the first book is, is it got many, many landscapes in it. It's journeys that begin essentially at the periphery and go into the interior. Um, this book moves 
so that's a horizontal <laughs> geography, and this time it's a it's it's a vertical geography. The, the major locations of this book are Central Texas and then Iowa, two places that I know pretty well. And um, I wouldn't describe Texas as technically flyover country, but Texas is. By the time you get to the middle of Texas, you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then, of course, Iowa, which is a wonderful state. I lived there for many years, um, is, of course, indeed sort of a classic flyover country. And I wanted to get the, like, the whole continental U.S. into this story. The first novel is very much a novel of deserts and forests. Like you know, the, the cover is a picture of a forest. Um, the cover of this novel is a field, and that's the geography of this book. It's a novel in fields. The third novel, The City of Mirrors, self-explanatory title. It's an urban story. You also promised me last time uh, when we spoke that this would be a spy novel mm-hmm. and, yep. and uh, mission accomplished. Yes, it's very much a book about infiltration. Um, I love, love, love the conceit of a character who is pretending to be somebody else and has deeply infiltrated the enemy lines, right? And uh, it's a it's a situation of such natural dramatic tension and a t- and a test of character and self control that I would absolutely fail right and you really want your characters to go accomplish things you can't do that's one of the great pleasures of of writing and I suppose also reading you know um, I'm a great fan of the wonderful stylish elegant spy novels of Alan First um, and wherever I go and people say what do you love I always put them at the top of the list. Again, somebody who works with an established genre, the spy novel, um, but does it with, um, to you know, with tremendous um, elegance at the level of the sentence and at the level of character, but also with a real strong awareness that he is writing. Um, all his novels are set in 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 the period kind of leading up to American entry into the Second World War. He's writing about the part of the war that we didn't really experience and a lot of Americans simply don't know about, the kind of complex political murk that existed prior to um, our entry into the war. And um, he is, again, aware that great storytelling involves telling the story of private lives with a vast and interesting public backdrop. So his characters are, I don't want to say ordinary men and women because they tend to be great romantic heroes. Um, you know, a dashing French film producer who all of a sudden, because the Nazis have taken over France, finds himself no longer um, living a life where he attends elegant parties and experiences um, all these wonderful nights of love. He all of a sudden has to become something better and something, um, you know, he has to he has to step up. And um and so he finds himself carrying a secret message, and he's not quite sure about who it's from or where it's going, or even if it's any, even if it's really all that important. But he's doing his best, you know. And so the private has been um, subsumed, in a sense, by the by the public. And I, so I love these books. I love good spy fiction. They have just a wonderful ability to create tension. And in the twelve, you have a woman who is infiltrating what is essentially, you know, a kind of um, uh, a police state community um, where she has to pretend to be, uh, you know, um, on the side of the bad guys. But in fact, she is an insurgent. I mean, that's the term that is used. Insurgency is a subject that comes up in this book again and again, specifically suicide bombing and sort of both sides of that. You see it from both sides. In the beginning of the novel, you see it from the point of view of an American GI in uh, Afghanistan who witnesses a horrible event involving suicide bombing. And then later on, one of the characters that we love the most is facing the prospect of becoming one and has, in fact, a kind of 
you see the psychological rationale for that in a sympathetic way. And this brings me to something that I really liked about your book was the various visions of a post-apocalyptic America. And, you know, it's rather frightening. You show us uh, the American refugees Mm -hmm. and in a manner that can only, you know, make us think of Katrina and and now the latest storm on the East Coast. And I think that that kind of vision is, is frightening for your ability to show us something that occurs in an imagined landscape mm-hmm. and we can see it in the real landscape. I started writing these books, or not quite the writing of it, but the conceiving of it, right after Hurricane Katrina, uh, which made a huge impression on me. Um, I'm not from New Orleans, but I'm from Houston, which um, is very, very close. And, and, and Houston really did a great job sort of absorbing a great many of the refugees. I was very proud of my city then. Um, but... I was also um, involved in one of the largest urban evacuations ever, which happened only a few weeks later, which was the evacuation of Houston in advance of Hurricane Rita, the kind of forgotten hurricane. But it was right after Katrina. It was part of that unbelievable year of hurricanes. And at one point, Hurricane Rita was a Category 5 that was going to head like right over my house. Um, and so with about a million of my fellow Houstonians or Houstoners, as I like to call them, I hit the road with my family and got stuck. It didn't work. You can't get people out of a city that quickly. And so like everybody else, we were on a, we got about 60 miles. We're marooned on a highway. Um, you know, we'd made a fraction of the distance to Austin. That's where we were headed. Um, and we decided that the only thing to do was jump the median and turn around. It was it was a scene like something out of Exodus. I mean, people were you know sleeping all by the side of the road. Everybody had run out of gas. All the gas stations and mini marts were totally picked clean. The veneer of civilization held. I mean, I didn't hear about many bad incidents. Um, people behaved remarkably well. Um, it was Texas, so one of the reasons they probably behaved so well is everybody was everybody was strapped. You know, <laughs> everybody was packing. Um, but uh, the experience of being part of a large urban evacuation definitely colored my writing of these books. Now, we also get, as you mentioned, uh, an American insurrection. And with this, I think one of the things that makes this uh, book uh, read so well is you give us some new slang to, mm-hmm. to describe things. And you do a good job at giving us just enough so that we're wondering what do they mean by that and then we figure it out yeah. and then but not so much that we it, it's like reading uh, clockwork orange right no i mean everything would change and it would depend on how closely connected to the past um, your surviving community was i mean they're essentially but by the time you get to the end of the, book, the second book you've spent time in three communities that have endured um, and all of them existing in pretty hermetic isolation, as as you would have to in a world where there are 40 million immortal monsters bouncing around the North American continent, you know, eating up everything with hemoglobin in, in its veins from voles to grizzly bears, right? And there's one community that was originally settled by children uh, that were evacuated but from the city of Philadelphia. That's the one in Southern California. And, uh, and a few adult minders uh, and they were supposed to be there for a little while, but the army never came back, right? So they're really cut off from the past. They don't have, you know, really, you know, strong memories of what the old world used to be. And so 
they've essentially formed a kind of domestic community. They're, you know, they call their governing body, body the household. They have the most sort of Creole in their language, the sort of local patois in, their, in the way they talk. Um, they don't even they don't even know what the world used to be. Nothing from the past really makes sense to them. It's a bunch of junk that's lying around that they go harvest once in a while. This community in Texas, being Texans, you know, they uh, in the last days of the war they declared their independence, moved their capital to Kerrville, Texas, walled it off, and toughed it out, uh, running on oil taken from the strategic petroleum reserves in Freeport, Texas. They exist in a continuum with both a, a past and a future. They have an energy resource that is close to inexhaustible, given the size of those petroleum reserves and the fact that there are several of them strung along the coast. They have a kind of memory of the old world. Um, they exist in a continuum. So that setting is kind of more like our world. I mean, they, they, those people are more like you and me. And uh, and then there's a the third community, again, which has a completely different way of operating. It's essentially a police state. So um, each of them has different cultural aspects. You know, one of them is essentially a Marxist kibbutz. <laughs> one of them has money and has an economy um, and has jobs where you essentially compete for these different jobs. And then there's one that is functions like, you know, the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, each of them, in my mind, being in a weird way, logical responses to the circumstance. I mean, the logic of storytelling would say that these are three kinds of places that, that you might see. And, and when you talk about the police state, that's a really, uh, you do a great job at creating a, a frightening vision of an American police state. And, <laughs> and of, course it's a, of course, it's run by a bureaucrat, right? Is it not? Yeah. <laughs> um, police states love paperwork, right? And one of the defining features of this place is that people are constantly walking around with clipboards. And, you know, the... The the Nazis loved paperwork. Um, everything was everything was in triplicate, um, and um, but of course it's also a, you know, a kind of deeply American version of this. The guy that runs this is um, in in some ways it's sort of modeled on the the incompetence and self interest of the uh, the FEMA secretary who presided over um, the Katrina disaster and the sort of moral blandness that you get within bureaucratic structures. You, you mentioned oil, and I thought you did a great job describing that technology. And I'm yeah. wondering, did you yourself climb around in some of those places? I, did, I didn't climb around so much as I had to kind of very carefully research how it worked. I live in Texas, where you have almost this sort of patriotic uh, obligation to understand the refining process of oil and gas. And I have a lot of friends who are petroleum engineers um, and uh, geologists, and um, it's. I live in a town essentially of engineers um, who can tell you an awful lot about what they do. I, of course, had been around refineries, but large commercial refineries would be a kind of inappropriate. Be, you don't have enough people in this world to actually operate one of those things. You need you need a ton of folks to do it. So I had to design a sort of pocket refinery and understand how it would operate. Understand all kinds of technical stuff. You know the names of the name of the gook that accumulates at the bottom of uh, of a refining tower, and um, you know w what you would do with it. You know you have to flush it down something called the asphalt drain. I had to learn a lot about this stuff, and that's one of the pleasures of my job is 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 having um, a shallow knowledge of many subjects. It makes me seem much smarter than I actually am, which is a, which is a nice nice thing in my life. Well, it makes the uh, reading experience uh, really nice and prickly with all sorts of interesting textures. We, you know, get uh, 
the community over here and we get the technology over there and then we get the internal vision of some of the vampires or the creatures like vampires as they slowly transform from within and this is a really nice bit of horror writing that you do mm-hmm. I'm thinking of uh, Lawrence Gray right? and you have a lot of fun with that guy I love that oh. guy oh yeah no I do too I mean he's I, one thing one of the challenges of course was to take a guy who is outwardly awful in a lot of ways I mean if you looked at his criminal record you wouldn't want him living on the same block as you he's a he's a paroled chemically neutered sex offender who becomes a kind of vampire he becomes he's, he's what's called a familiar um and i won't go into all the details i don't want to spoil too much um but um i really wanted to make him a sympathetic guy he's in and he's um you know he's a character looking for redemption who actually is a kind of a softy and I really wanted to make him somebody, oddly enough, to, again, a challenge to do, to take somebody who you really, really don't want to like and end up finding yourself rather sympathetic for him. I, I thought you did a great job. And it a lot, this goes to one of the things that we, uh, that I, you know, Make this makes this book so interesting is the the plotting by character development. There are so many great characters that when we come back to them, and one of the things you do too is you'll create a great character, and then maybe something unexpected will happen. And I think you do a there's a quite a bit of bravery in this book for you as a writer. And I'm wondering yeah. if you as a writer uh, kind of went, well, is that really a good idea? Um, sometimes I do that. Um, I tend not to, and my editor is the guy who asks that question. You know, do you really, we left this character, do you really need to kill them? And to which I always say, that's the world this story takes place in, baby. You know, if I, it would be dishonest of me if everybody, everybody got out of this unscathed. Um, and so I'm very incautious about that. Um, occasionally, um, my extremely smart and able editor in New York will, um, tell me to, rein it in a little bit um, but I do I do believe that you should make the reader squirm in a bunch of different ways and one of them is when they realize there's a lot of dirt on the hero and one, and the other way is when they realize there's some beauty on the villain you know and I always say I, I've been a teacher for many years of uh, principally fiction writing and I always tell my students put one brushstroke of beauty on the on the bad guy Right, because it'll make them seem real and complex, and you'll feel something lost by their evil. Uh, you know, the, the the example I always give is those videos where you see Hitler sort of very gently cupping the chin of a child. Now, of course, it's an Aryan child, and he's very sentimental about that. You know, he's, he's, eugenics is on his mind. He's not a not a nice guy, but you actually see kind of paternal tenderness and affection in the gesture. And you know, you're looking at a guy who killed six million people. We have here the first two parts of a longer story. I'd like you to talk about crafting this entire story. As you're writing it, you must be finding new things to put in mm-hmm. and finding old things that have to come out True. and trying to put together this larger story. Talk about that process for you. I'm a big planner. I don't think you can uh, write a good novel where you don't know how it ends. I feel like the the beginning of the story must contain its ending in the same way that a well-told joke knows the punchline before it starts. So I'm a very big planner, and I know the series of events that lead with logic, both physical and psychological, to the conclusion of the book. I've known 
the events of the trilogy, the major events of the trilogy from the start before I wrote a word. Each of the books is exists as a kind of summary that I've written down. And then when I begin the book, as I began the 12 about 18 months ago, two years ago, following on the publication of the passage, that's when I develop it into a detailed outline. Making sure that I don't wander off, you know, because there's a place this whole story has to get to. And I know what it is. I know the last sentence of the third book. I'm one of those writers that really needs to know how it ends, not just in terms of event, but in terms of actual rhetoric language. Along the way, you get a lot of room to improvise. But it's like jazz, you know, where you're listening to um, a trio play My Favorite Things, and for a little while, that melody kind of goes underground, right? And then it comes back, and you realize you've been hearing it all along. And that's kind of the trick, I think, to making your way, you know, creatively and, you know, pleasurably through the writing of a book. You give yourself the freedom to improvise, but you have to keep in mind where it is you're getting to and not get not create a situation where that becomes impossible because then you've got a real mess on your hands. I've read any number of books where I've seen that happen to the writer because I can see the wires. You know, when you when you do this for a living, you can kind of see what's happening. I've seen a wire a writer go way down the wrong road and have to kind of backtrack in the story to kind of yank the story back to where they want want to get it. And usually they don't actually succeed at that. You can see how They've, you know, they instead of just going back, cutting it out, moving forward, they've tried to backtrack around it because they've they've fallen in love with some new piece of material and they can't let it go, um, and they end up uh, never quite making complete, you know, a completely uh, logical chain out of the events and scenes of the book. That happens to me once in a while, and it's always kind of a heartbreak. Um, usually, they're just tangents. I have there are all these stories in this world. You know, that is, you know, there's a there's a hundred years worth of stories. There's a hundred years worth of things going on. There's all kinds of stories that come from the, the year of the great viral catastrophe that I'd love to tell. I can't fit them all in. They don't make sense to have them in the books. And um, what I hope to do is take some of the best of these that have either ended up on the cutting room floor or not written as a consequence of my uh, acknowledging the fact that they could not fit um, into a fourth book. That, in, that will be a series of stories, um, you know, short stories and novellas. I like the novella length. I, was, I actually should have been a 19th century German writer that tells some of these other stories, some of them with characters that you know and some of them not, some of them, you know, sort of backstory narratives, for instance. And as we move into the third book, there's going to be a significant boat, right, that gets found containing information. What happened on that boat? can't fit it in but it's a great story and it's probably 74 and a half pages long and I really want to write it so I will get to it eventually. I'm glad you're still going to work within this world because I wanted to talk to you a little bit finish up talking about world building. This is not our world. It starts out different. And one of the things I noticed that we have uh, some evidence of global warming in the way one of the Mm -hmm. rivers runs. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you to talk about building that world that's just slightly tweezed from ours Mm -hmm. and then taking it into the next world and the next world and the next world because each world is very different as the epidemic progresses. Right. I mean, I have to account, in a sense, for the kinds of changes culturally, socially, um, biologically, environmentally that would take place over long spans of time with radical changes, such as humanity vanishes, basically. That requires 
information from fields of knowledge that I do not have actually pretty good, you know, good command of. I have to go talk to people. But you also have to just kind of sit around and think about it. I mean, contemplation of things is really the way you get at most useful information. Global warming clearly has become a factor in the beginning of this novel, and it plays out. If you just took people away and shut down all the cold fire generators tomorrow, global warming is still going to happen. I mean, we've already done most of the damage. You know, if you unmanned the world, so to speak, what would happen to all those chemical plants and nuclear reactors? I mean, it's we've we've created a real toxic mess that, without supervision and even with it, sometimes would create a huge problem. People have accused me of all kinds of eerie prescience in this, and it really was just me thinking logically. The um, the oil rig in the Gulf that blew apart and spewed, you know, a billion gallons into the Gulf is actually forecast in the passage, right? Because a character describes the Gulf as, you know, basically a walk, you know, basically an oil slick now because of all those rigs that just kept pumping it out because there was nobody there to shut them down. Global warming will be a third factor in the third book. Actually, it's really changed the landscape. Um, and it's one that we've all been observing as um, a victim of global warming in the last few weeks. And I better shut up now because it gives a lot away. Um, but let me just say that there are some cities that with no human resources applied to the prevention of rising sea levels would become very much like Venice. What are our prospects of seeing this uh, adapted in a Game of Thrones-style, <clears throat> high-stakes, well-done-for-TV movie? Yeah, I, I think that would be great. Um, the, it was purchased for um, theatrical film. You mm-hmm. know, It was purchased for the movies, um, the first book, Options on 2 and 3, uh, by Fox a number of years ago. Um, you know, waiting. They're you know waiting for the second and third books because you can't make a good movie out of this if you don't know how the whole story ends because you got to do a lot of condensation and you know recombining to fit this much narrative material into um, something the length of you know a movie or three movies. I have become increasingly aware of and a fan of good television. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up, you know, I was born in 1962, so I grew up um, watching the television of the 1970s. Um, and um, which was really a low point in human culture. Um, nowadays, you get a group of educated people together, or really anybody, and pretty soon they're going to start talking about their favorite shows. And uh, and you know, I think that good television, The Sopranos was kind of the, the, the kicked the door in, but then you know, The Wire and. Um, Things like Downton Abbey, which I love, and The Walking Dead, which I love. You're free to love both The Walking Dead and Downton Abbey, which is kind of interesting. But these are sort of our new Dickens. You know, Dickens published all his novels serially. Everybody was standing on the dock waiting for the next chapter of David Copperfield. And that's what television, good television, has become. It's been taken over by good writers. The f- film is a is basically, you know, tentpole movie making is a is a director's medium. It's a visual medium. Uh, television is now a writer's medium. Why was The Wire so good? Well, the people who wrote for it were terrific and included many novelists. George Pelicanos. George Pelicanos, yeah. Dennis Lehane. Mm-hmm. You know, these people came with really, really sophisticated narrative sense. And, you know, so watching um, The Wire was really like reading Dostoevsky, I mean, in a lot of ways. And um, so the answer to your question is I am now officially out of the closet on advocating for... Um, a sort of Game of Thrones approach to this. You know, Game of Thrones, big fat novels, lots of characters, ensemble storytelling, lots of history. Um, those are the kinds of books that I'm trying to write and I think would be 
very well accommodated, very well accommodated through the television, uh, you know, the kinds of television that that we're now seeing, and that's kind of what I'm crossing my fingers for. And I don't have my, I don't have a lot to say about it, but that's that's what I'm rooting for at this point. Well, I'd say to my mind. People who like the Game of Thrones would find these books extremely good. It's it's not it's a similar sensibility of storytelling, big story, great characters. Uh, Things some things matter. I can't. I came to Game of Thrones by watching the 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 HBO. Mm -hmm. Right, I'd not read Game of Thrones. Always heard it was good, worth my time. Kind of just hadn't gotten around to it, and I fell crazy in love with the the show. It's just great storytelling Mm -hmm. and the objection to doing television for fantasy in any form science fiction fantasy is always that good special effects are too expensive for tv that's the that's the kind of standard issue i don't think special effects is what makes a great movie no you know I, i feel i feel kind of pummeled by special effects now i go to you know i go to a summer movie take my kids by the time the previews are over, I feel like I've been through a badly mismatched fist fight. You know, I just, I just feel pounded. Um, I think it's character. You look at a show like Walking Dead. Yeah, it's pretty clear that those are extras wearing a lot of makeup who've been coached in how to stagger. Right? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's a great show. The characters are terrific. Um, even the very annoying characters, which is something television dares to do, which movies don't do, is you get more time to make a complex character, somebody who is sympathetic and interesting who you also want to hate. Um, again, I like the medium. It's become a real writer's medium. And uh, in the 1970s, people did not sit around talking about whether or not they preferred Nanny and the Professor to I Dream of Jeannie. You know, we're lucky that we have this now. And anyway, I'm a fan. That's become my preference. Well, one of the things that uh, make drives your book that you're talking about is stories. Story is not only it's a part of the actual story in the book. In that, as learning the stories behind the characters, how they became the way they became, yeah. is part of the way you drive the plot. So it's interesting to find a story that uses story itself as part of the story. Right, right. And that's that's um, I, I, that's that's sort of my rule as a writer is to think vertically about my characters. A lot of novels that are written principally for kind of entertainment value, right? Think about their characters horizontally. What do they do next? What do they do next? What is this show about them? Which is fine. It's a good way to characterize, and you always have to use it to a certain extent. I mean, my characters live in a story. They live in plot. But there's a story behind the story that is, as you say, is kind of what what shapes their personality. And um, when you think about the people in your life that you know well, you know them well because you do know the story behind the story. I've been speaking with Justin Cronin. His new book is The Twelve. Thank you for joining me, Justin. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here on your show. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.